Hi, and welcome to The Stripping Scholar, a podcast with me, Fräulein Frauke. Here I talk with very specially invited guests about burlesque as an artistic practice and explore concepts around sexuality on stage. I am delighted to say hi and welcome to Martin Hargreaves, uh, a dramaturg, a writer whose interests vacillate between boredom and hysteria. Your research connects around performance and performativity and includes the recent histories of contemporary dance, queering practices and camp misunderstandings. You are a visiting lecturer at Stockholm University of the Arts, which is how I met you, and head of choreographic school at Sadler's Wells in London. Hello and welcome. Hello, thank you for this invitation. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, today we're going to talk about the gaze and the male gaze and try to dig into that. Uh, this is what Wikipedia has to say about it. <clears throat> In critical theory, sociology and psychoanalysis, the gaze in the philosophical and figurative sense is an individual's or a group's awareness and perception of other individuals, other groups or oneself. Michel Foucault developed the concept of the gaze to illustrate the dynamics of socio-political power relations and the social dynamics of society's mechanisms of discipline. The concept of the male gaze was first used by the English art critic John Berger in 1972 as part of his analysis of the treatment of the nude in European painting. Berger described the difference between how men and women view and are viewed in art and in society. He asserts that men are placed into the role as the watcher and women are to be looked at. Laura Mulvey, a British film critic and feminist, similarly critiqued traditional media representation of the female character in cinema in her 1975 essay, Visual Pleasure and Narrative Cinema. Mulvey discusses the association between activity and passivity to gender. Essentially, Mulvey argues that masculinity is related to the active, whereas femininity is related to the passive. Furthermore, she highlights heterosexual desire and identity and how they are related to the roles assigned to masculinity and femininity. This puts the viewer of a film into the role of the active masculine and coaxes the viewer to desire the passive feminine. This left no room for female activity and desire in the stereotypical masculine role. So, <laughs> uh, what is your, your thought on the gaze, um, maybe from a performative context? Well, I guess maybe if I trace my history of encounter with these ideas, well, I, I'm still attracted to this idea. I think it still does something, but I, but I have uh, problems with it. And some of them, some of them are contained within uh, how Wikipedia sets it out. So I encountered Mulvey's article, Visual Pleasure and Narrative Cinema, probably 20 years after she published it in in the 90s and it had this life that I don't think she'd anticipated and actually I've been uh, in preparation for this I, I have read more recent work of Mulvey where people keep asking her to return to this text and she wrote it she wasn't in academia she was in a women's liberation movement reading group and they read Freud and she'd been going to see lots of Hollywood cinema and found that her politics meant that she was becoming a bit more 
distrustful of her the pleasure that she got from watching Hollywood films of the 1950s. So, you know, she starts by saying, can we use psychoanalysis as a political weapon? And I think there's something about the, that essay that's very seductive. It's it, because it's very simple in a way. And, and she knows that. I mean, she's much later, she's saying people call it Mulby's manifesto. And she she, she didn't anticipate it quite as a manifesto, but these great slogans, destruction of pleasure as a radical weapon. And uh, it's this moment of trying to be hyperbolic or, ex- or exaggerate something to make a point, to push an analysis. But part of the problem with Mulvey's essay is the fact that it becomes such a foundational text that she never anticipated. So I encountered it uh, when I was a student in the 90s in dance studies, and people were using it to an- analyse contemporary dance and it was used as if to say the male gaze first of all is inevitable and secondly is successful that somehow it's this complete and authoritarian mode of looking that we cannot escape and I I think Mulvey is sort of is suggesting that actually in, in the 70s but she's suggesting it because she doesn't want time for nuance in that essay. She's not yet an academic. She's not writing within film studies. She's really just trying to understand her attraction to psychoanalysis and what that can do to structurally disrupt some of the pleasures that Hollywood cinema invite you into. I don't know. I I find it, still find it kind of exciting that somebody would do that. (laughs) Somebody sees these tools and says, how can I understand my own pleasure in looking and call for a kind of radical rethinking of pleasure. So that, that's my first encounter with it. But then the more that you dig into Mulvey and the way Mulvey has been uh, written about, and I haven't spoken about Foucault that actually Wikipedia talk about first and then John Berger, but if I stay with, with Mulvey for the time being, she really relies on this heterosexual distinction between the person that looks and the person that is looked at. The person that looks is somehow active. The person that is looked at is somehow passive. And looking is an act of desire or identification. You can't do both simultaneously. Mm. So everything is split into binaries. Everything is organized according to heterosexual notions of desire and into quite... Well, I don't know that they're successful ideas of, of... gender. She is trying to say masculinity is always in crisis. That's why it wants to punish the the female figures that it looks at. Mm. So it's not, I don't think she's saying uh, masculine power is completely inevitable, but it seems almost like, I mean, when when she writes that women watching these films have to submit to a kind of transvesticism, Mm. they have to pretend to be men. Yeah, they become in the male role yes, somehow. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think <clears throat> I understand the context of Mulvey's argument. I think it's the afterlife mm. of that article that, that establishes this thing where, I mean, I've read a recent text of hers and she says, the male gaze sort of just circulates now as this phrase, the male mm, gaze. Yeah. <laughs> and we kind of think we know what it means, but actually underpinning it are very problematic ideas around activity, passivity, gender, sexuality. Just like Even just this idea that you can't both desire and identify at the same time, mm. you know. So there's there's lots of things that I find drawn to as a political moment in in what was the women's liberation movement and then much more forcefully named feminism. But then also I'm kind of, I distance myself a bit from the kind of fundamental heterosexuality of the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. fair. 
I, I kind of felt like I came from it from the other way around. Like I feel like the the notion of the male gaze is very present in my uh, life or understanding. And then when I actually start looking at it, I'm like, actually, I don't really understand it. You know, it's one uh. of these things that I have been using that I feel like other people have been using me and my partner as a, a kind of art duo creating images. We have talked about it, like, how do we get away from the, the male gaze that, that we maybe have or, you know, that. Um, and then I was like, the more I think about it, the more confused, I guess. And then I got in, like, I read Mulvey and I kind of, uh, I know that it, it was a page, like it come, comes from her in, in large extent. And and then it's really it's really fun to, to kind of read Mulvey because I, I agree with everything you say to the extent I have understood it. But like you can you can see all these examples and you're like, yes, it's exactly like that yes. in this example. And you're like, <laughs> yes. that is really fucked up. And you kind of, but then you also see other examples as with everything. And, and like you say, it's also like, it fits very well in this maybe time period and right. you know, with these people and, and then all of a sudden you see something else and you kind of go, oh, but wait a minute. But I do think like it is interesting, even though she she wasn't anticipating that or like meaning for that to happen particularly. It is interesting that it is such a word or like right. a concept that has got this life force of its own. And I feel as a, as a woman uh, in performance that deals with sexuality, that there is definitely an element or a resistance to... And an inv- uh, somewhere in between a resistance and a um, total uh, dwelling into the idea of also the male gaze. Or like kind of, and then again, what is the male gaze? Yes. <laughs> what I maybe mean is this thing of like, I, I associate the male gaze, uh, to be more concrete, with uh, the, the beauty norms we have. Like what society kind of tells us is an attractive woman. And again, it's very heterosexual it's, yeah. or, and very kind of Western white perspective yeah. of what a what a male, I put air quotes on, um, <laughs> would find attractive. Uh, and that is what I then mean with saying like, oh, I kind of resist that. But also as a person growing up here, you know, in the society, uh, also find that attractive. And that's kind of a way I have been using the male gaze yeah. in terms of like, what do we find, we as a society, images or you know norms or standards and then where like how do we position ourselves and them yeah and i think i mean because berger who wikipedia cite as use i hadn't realized that he'd used the phrase the male gaze beforehand but I, but in that um it was a tv series that then became a book ways of seeing it. and um his i mean his analysis that the museums are full of portraits of naked women by men uh, is still fairly <laughs> relevant. Yes. So, so it's not that um, that's I'm I'm saying that that it's just this historical mm. moment mm. of the uh, 60s and 70s when these articles were written. You know, if we think of the feminist um, performance art group, the Guerrilla Girls, you know, they they regularly do these analyses of different museums around the world and say how many female artists are there mm. and how many female bodies are there. Yeah, that's and very it, interesting. Yes, and it's always way more bodies yeah. on on display and. And I was thinking about this, the, even just, uh, I watched um, uh, Michelle Yao's acceptance speech for the oh, Oscars, yeah. and she says something about not being too old to be an actress. And everyone sort of understands what she's saying, thinks, oh, isn't this great that she's articulating that? And I thought, well, in 2023, that is something she, that she still needs to iterate, yeah. that she still has a certain kind of value as a woman, 
albeit not a white Western woman, but uh, she's, a, she's a woman working within Hollywood, her value is still associated to how she looks or how she may seduce the, mm. the presumed male consumer. And you wouldn't hear the best actor um, no. talk about his age in that way. Yeah. So there's, I think these norms and standards are differentially distributed and mm. power is definitely still um, very much organised through the gaze, through looking, through who is looked at, what kinds of judgments are, are brought through that, that looking. Yeah. But I'm kind of interested also in, well, what this produces within feminism is, is a split around the idea of agency mm. because it assumes that to be looked at means that you are passive, that you're giving exactly. over yeah. <laughs> your, your pleasure yeah. to the person looking at you. And I think even, I mean, I found it problematic that dance studies was doing that because I don't think that represents necessarily the experience of dancers who identify mm. as female. And I'm sure that in the in your practice of burlesque, it's not about you uh, becoming passive and removing any pleasure. No, exactly. I think, and, and that's, I guess you and you said it earlier as well. Like that's a very good point. Yeah, is if that is the idea that the being looked at is passive, that's a very big statement. Right. That yeah, I don't at all agree with in terms of my practice, but also to to put that as a claim, then not just within burlesque, or like you say in dance or yeah. other other spectacular forms. Yeah, which exactly. Invite, which invite is about viewing. in viewing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it kind of becomes very uh, dogmatic then yes. because it it puts like a negative like. And that's also one of the reasons why I do this podcast series about like, okay, uh, trying to figure out like my, my, my place in contemporary feminism. And like, yeah, that's one of those kind of points where yeah. you're like, actually, that is really problematic. But then where do you go with that? I don't say every feminist agrees with that, no, but no. it is one of these things that has kind of it's, been fairly... It's a, it's a, it's a debate um, that splits yeah. feminism, particularly around things like around like pornography. Yes, exactly. Uh, that, and, and it, finds a, then a strange alliance between anti-pornography um, feminists and kind of the religious right who want to censor all bodies and, yes. and think that nudity... And... Which is a very unfortunate yes. kind of marriage. Yes. Uh, but yeah. seems to be... Seems to be ongoing. Well. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yes, they haven't divorced just yet. Um, <laughs> but uh, there's something that's complex about the, the, uh, the theory of the male gaze, but I don't think we're ready. I don't feel ready to get rid of it completely. I think I'm, I enjoy it precisely because it is complex. Yeah. I guess some of how I used it way back when I first encountered it in the 90s as I moved into uh, writing my PhD about uh, queer performance, queer, actually gay male performance, but I used the word queer maybe problematically, but um, thinking around what is a desiring male-to-male gaze? Because, of course, Mulvey says the male body cannot bear the, the yeah. brunt of the male gaze. Of course, she's talking about mainstream uh, Hollywood cinema. Mm. So she's not anticipating queer cinema. Yeah. And, and in later writings, she avows that and talks about pleasure. But I'm interested also then how, how we might think of the gaze as not something that comes out of a male position to a female body, but actually the, the gaze is a structural form that mm. produces masculinity and femininity, which I think is partly, this is this is the kind of performative twist. Yeah, I was just going to say, <laughs> that's very butler in yes. the sense of saying it's yeah. not something that is fixed, it's no. something that we, that we repeat. perform and yeah. repeat. Yeah, it, we cite mm. it. And, mm. and, and I think that, that analysis is actually latent in both Berger and in... In Mulvey, it's definitely in Foucault uh, earlier. Foucault doesn't 
use psychoanalysis at all, you know. Mm. Uh, but I think what Wikipedia is referring to is um, the birth of the prison and this notion of surveillance, a kind of internalized form of surveillance where mm. we su survey ourselves. We, we always assume we're being watched. Mm. And so there's this kind of internal policing function where um, the butler actually uses both. She uses psychoanalysis. She doesn't use gaze theory, actually, very much, but she uses psychoanalysis and she uses Foucault to talk yeah. about those forms of internalized policing that produce gender. So I think there's oh, something yeah. about, you know, can we queer the idea of the male gaze and actually think that the male gaze is constantly monitoring itself. Mas it's actually what it's trying to produce is not a passive feminine body. It's actually trying to produce active masculinity is trying to produce heterosexuality is trying mm. to produce binary gender but it never really fully succeeds so that's really interesting and yeah kind of fun way of thinking about it when you were just saying that i also think about like it feels like then if we kind of keep it to the to malvay's idea of it that it also it has nothing necessarily to do with with the gender of maleness but no. power relation of right. like and then sadly or you know whatever reason we put it into two like you said very binary yeah. thing of like this one and there's two and then right. yeah there's because yeah it feels like like you were saying male to male or or this thing it, it this idea of yeah it's the powerful that is looking and then can put objectification on kind of anything like yes. anybody or yeah. or any thing really and we don't necessarily need to put that into like the heterosexual specter of like the man versus the woman. And no. that is how it always is in that like direct line. No, and I think, you know, she does. I mean, I think there are useful things in there because obviously she's interested in the Freudian notion of scopophilia, the pleasure mm. that we that everybody, every human, at least that we know, um, probably other other animals also um, have in looking and then she divides she again she divides that up I think it's part of her polemic to create these binaries between masochism and fetishism mm. you know so there's a kind of cruelty uh, to to um, to looking well actually there's a division before that which is identification desire and then yeah. desire somehow operates through either um, a need to punish the castrated female or to produce a fetish that somehow hides castration yeah. um, and they, I mean this is very sort of extreme Freudian notions of uh, of castration the castration anxiety which even even when Mulvey's writing it um, a lot of feminists are asking is this useful does it just describe where we are rather than a timeless ahistorical mm. structure for gender? Is it just that actually Freud's writing, the, you know, at the beginning of the 20th century and when the group of feminists that, that Mulvey is in dialogue with in the 70s, they're saying, well, yes, this is still sort of happening. There's still a, a sense in which female bodies are investigated and produced as somehow having a lack. It doesn't mean that they actually are. Have a lack, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, it's just that that's how visual culture... Yeah, how it works now. Yeah, and and of course she's writing bef she's writing mainly when people are still going to the cinema to see films. Mm. Home, you know, you haven't got, really got home video in the 70s. So mm. people are going, as she says, and sitting in the dark and somehow projecting all of their fantasies yeah. onto the screen. So the, so the cinema becomes this fantasy machine, which of course now it's not, you know, when you stream something on your phone. Yeah, it's, it's very not, different. Yeah, yeah, of course. It's a, it, again, fantasy is still there, but it's a different kind of socialized form of fantasy. 
the Foucauldian notion of the internalized gaze, which he doesn't name the male gaze, uh, I think is also something that is one of those things that also has an afterlife. Mm. Foucault is talking about it um, in a book called The Birth of the Prison. And because he's talking about surveillance, it becomes very popular because, of course, mm. you know, we're in, uh, he couldn't have anticipated how much we internalize surveillance. He couldn't have yeah. an, uh, anticipated the fact that we take 10 selfies before we post one. I, I must say that I, I have read uh, a little bit about his book about sexuality, but I haven't read this book you are uh, referring to. Yeah. And I listened to this podcast episode that I swear to God, my mind was blown. I was like, this <laughs> is so interesting in terms of this, uh, um, like what he was saying about the internalization of what is it called? Like uh, surveillance. And, yes. Yeah, exactly yeah. what you're talking yeah, yeah. about. And I'm happy I did listen to it bef- before I met you because I was like, oh, yeah, this makes sense. And it definitely makes sense in, in what we're talking about now, because one thing I did want to bring up uh, in this conversation uh, was from another um, podcast um, episode that I listened to, which was uh, a feminist podcast called The Lillipod. And she brought up this thing about the, the internalized male gaze and right. how I will put a note so people can listen to that. It was I thought it was a great episode, but very interesting for me because I was like, oh, I haven't really thought about it this way. And she was kind of saying how we as all like all women and that in itself is a little bit mm. I'm not going to quote her on that. I don't know exactly, but yeah. it felt like she was kind of <laughs> yeah. saying all women. Uh, are feeling this and I could recognize some of it this and her kind of her way of talking about it was very much like we are so brought up with these ideas of beauty and how to be sexy for this male audience that even when no one is around we kind of we lounge in our bed in a certain way and and, you know we dress in a certain way or or we kind of pose in a certain way Um, and I did recognize like just on a personal level I did recognize it Uh, but I also got very kind of provoked by it because I didn't completely want to sign under under it um but it also made me think about like coming back to burlesque like it's i really feel like if i did have that maybe i did maybe i still do i mean i'm not saying it's gone but uh, i feel like it's interesting when you work with something that is so exaggerated in terms of aesthetic right and in terms of like i use air quotes sexiness that it kind of gets away from this because the male gaze, if we want to call it that, or or the the normative idea of a beautiful woman for a heterosexual male spectator, uh, is a very kind of safe, sexy woman. Right. It's the kind of girl next door, you know. Often yeah. it's it's kind of it's available but kind of hot, and with a lot of forms, including burlesque, is this thing of like it's not the girl next door it's not like you know it's not safe no so it actually kind of goes full circle and and it's not because it becomes threatening instead it becomes maybe exciting but it but it becomes threatening and and powerful in a way Uh, and i was just thinking very personally how since i started doing that really using those tools like it's so uninteresting to be this like the the norm the normal idea of beauty right because i go much higher or much lower, like I don't care because that's really comfortable <laughs> to not have to get. <laughs> so it was a, I don't know really what I want to say with it, except that it was an interesting kind of realization of how something can be quite useful in real life that is something theatrical. Yes, and I think it, I think you you said something that really stuck, which was around this notion of um, you kind of dial the volume up or it's, it's exaggerated, which is, again, it's it's like the notion of drag. So some of the actually around this time, there's there's feminist discourse that 
that dismisses drag as as offensive to women because mm. it mimics yeah. femininity. But um, Butler's arguments um, in the '90s is that actually what it mimics is mimicry, and then the mo- the modes by which we all mimic gender. There is no such thing as original natural, normal gender outside yeah. these systems of mimicry and copying and citation. And I think that's also with the gays, like the idea that we could somehow be uh, be a man or be a woman outside of systems of, of power, mm. of surveillance, of, of the threat of violence if we perform the gender wrong, I think is a misunderstanding of how gender is. The result of all those things yeah. it's, it doesn't exist before that and somehow is then warped by the male gaze mm. the male gaze is the way in which maleness is, yeah. is instigated as somehow holding power yeah. and a maleness even as a concept is policed and the borders of because i think i mean what you spoke about in terms of you know the casual policing of of your body even when you're not even when the only observer is yourself, there's um, this theory, there's, uh, I think it's Iris Marion Young wrote a, a text called Throwing Like a Girl, mm. where she talks about certain kinds of motor skills training that, that young girls go through, which are different from boys, which is really about inhabiting, it's, it's a way of training the body to respond differently and, and appear differently. So in order to throw like a girl, you don't throw like a girl naturally. You yeah. know, it's this phrase, throwing like a girl, which means you're not throwing with any effort or power or success and she's saying well it's because girls are not encouraged to take up space Mm. Uh, it's not because something inherent in girlishness Uh, girlishness is produced precisely through the parental policing of saying don't do that you'll look like a boy don't do that people will think you'll suspect you know and 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 what butler does is points that that actually with all of these ideas that there's a threat of being called a lesbian or the threat Mm. of being called gay which is also part of this policing. And Mulvey um, acknowledges this in, in later texts, but um, it's not there in that, in that moment in yeah. the 70s, but it's really, by the time we get to the 90s, uh, queer theory does something, I think, to gay theory, which is really, well, I got really excited by it, and, and, uh, yeah, and I still uh, engage with it in the different uh, practices that I do. Mm. I feel also there's other gases to be talked about, like... Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if, if we, uh, as a, a society, have talked about it for that long, but I feel like with intersectionality and also within performance practices now, like that we are more aware of of our different gazes that we might be holding, different privileges, like yeah. the white the gaze, so, you yeah. know, which is, again, something that makes sense to me in the context of what we have been saying. Like, yeah. it's another maybe way of just uh, pointing out our privileges that we have or yeah. are in. Like, what is your experience with that or your thoughts on Well, uh, Bell Hooks has written a response to Mulvey's article where she suggests that the black female body, again, in, in the kind of era that, that Mulvey is writing about, is really mm. not part of this whole system and structure of power. Mm. Uh, because it's very, the black female body is very rarely ever featured in Hollywood cinema of the 1950s. I mean, occasionally it'd be there as this exoticized other. Yeah. She suggests a kind of oppositional form of gaze that actually black spectators for these mainstream Hollywood films are not caught in between either identification and desire mm. because they're not being addressed. Yeah. So she's, she's, I mean, I think it's a very useful challenge to say, well, yeah, exactly who is being addressed through, through what means 
and at what time, because they're not universal structures, they're not timeless structures. And of course, there's, there's black cultural uh, visual culture that addresses black spectators in different ways. But actually what she's talking about is, well, what, what happens when you're not being included in the gaze? The, gaze, the cinema isn't looking at you mm. and it's not inviting you to look at it. So then what do you do? You can go and you can do something. So th- she's talking about a, a more self-aware spectator. And other people have used this to talk about queer spectators or trans, uh, non-cis or um, disabled bodies, thinking around, okay, body if certain registers of, of bodies are not in the dominant visual culture, does that mean you're not affected by that power? Of course you are, mm. but you may be, you have a position outside, you, you have a bit more insight into the structures of power precisely because you're not being addressed by yeah. it. So, and I think that's kind of, sometimes I think, and this is a very personal thing, I think one of the gifts of being queer <laughs> is, is that you're very rarely addressed. Even by, I would say that my attraction to queer theory in the 90s was because I didn't feel I was being addressed by mainstream white gay male culture. Mm. So suddenly queerness was suggesting a whole different set. It wasn't suggesting an identity position. It was suggesting practices and resistances and yeah, flows against dominant forms of looking and being looked at. I've been thinking recently about cruising in relationship to this because cruising as a practice, and here I'm thinking about, there's a, a black uh, North American science fiction writer called Samuel Delaney. He's written a history of um, Times Square in New York, and he used to go as a young man to cruise the cinemas there. There used to be pornographic cinemas all around Times Square before it was gentrified. So he writes this fantastic analysis looking at gentrification, but also looking at queer sex spaces. And he talks about the pleasure of objectification. Mm. Like, actually, sometimes what happens when you go cruising is you want somebody to take you as an object. You want someone to even have a certain kind of masochistic pleasure in using you or in fetishizing you, which seems like it's a very radical thing to claim because certainly the politics of the 70s would say, no, we don't, you know, as women, we don't want to be fetishized. As women, we don't want to be taken as an object. But what Delaney and, I mean, and lots of other feminist writers are saying, but also there's pleasure in being looked at. It exists, <laughs> yes. yeah. The, the pleasure isn't just in looking. The pleasure is being looked at. Yeah. And momentarily attracting the gaze. Knowing that you're not being seen as a whole person, yeah. knowing that you're sexually exciting somebody for whatever reason that they may have, that they may be perceiving mm. your body in a way that you don't perceive it, but that, and you may be doing the same to them. There may be these reciprocal gazes of objects. So, so it doesn't flow in just one way. Yeah. It gets more complicated, and and I, and I feel that definitely with burlesque. So there's something about um, the way that burlesque, as a kind of subcultural visual form, it's it's not it's drawing on mainstream culture. Definitely, it's referencing Hollywood of the fifties. <laughs> like it's it's doing all those things, but it's it's really avowing pleasure in a way that contemporary dance often didn't precisely coming out of this period of of discussion saying well if if we if we avow the pleasure of being looked at it's somehow it's not feminist or it's not Mm. it's not gay lesbian um, politically viable it's somehow um acquiescing to the male gaze and that assumes that the male gaze always wins yeah (laughs) like and i and i think if we let it in, it's going to come. Like, if we let it in, yeah. it'll come and it'll dominate us and, yeah. and it will divest us of any agency. And, and of course, I'm not saying that isn't true because 
saying there isn't inequalities in power, there aren't inequalities in how uh, women, people or people who identify as women are judged by image and men are not. You know, there are all those, uh, those things are still persistent. But I think performance, coming back to your idea that maybe performance is this moment where you actually, performance is about the gaze. Mm. It's about the male gaze in a way that's, that's really fucking with it. Yeah. You know, it's kind of saying, this is our material. If we know that, because it's a weird thing, right? Why do people go to this to a theatre to watch other people? Yeah, because we because we because we get off on watching other people, and you know that that's that's why the theatre exists. So to actually acknowledge that and say, well, I know you're looking, and I'm looking back, and I'm enjoying your gaze, and I'm returning it. Yeah. There's something there that I find very interesting. The way it's it's very clearly articulated within ballet, or my awareness of ballet. Yeah, no, but totally, I, I, I agree. And that's why I think it's kind of interesting to take a few steps back and be like, oh yeah, actually, like, yeah. how do other people see it? Or compare, like, I don't know very much about contemporary dance, but it does feel very, not always, of course, and not maybe so much anymore, but it does feel very much like it has been very separated from this thing of kind of sexuality. Yes. Because it's something else, which is also not a bad thing, but it's just interesting than how, I guess, some people want to question that as well then but i think it's it's partly a response to the theory of the male gaze mm. oh, that's be, uh, because i think there's this whole moment i mean mulvey actually gestures towards it at the end of her essay where she says we need to kind of not be nostalgic for the pleasures that we had she's talking about herself really she's saying because mm. she said she's written later saying i really miss <laughs> really just enjoying these Hollywood films. Yeah. But, but now, because I've become aware of feminism, I really can't because I see what's happening yeah. here. And so she calls for this destruction of pleasure. And there's a whole range of feminist filmmakers. And she, I think she mentioned Shantan Ackerman and Yvonne Rayner, who actually apply this this theory to, to making films. So mm. they remove the figure of the female body. Some, and the male protagonist is problematized and sometimes spectacularized and... Um, and I think it, produ- it, it produces a sense in which in order to make politically charged feminist art, you have to refuse to show female bodies mm. because female bodies will inevitably fall prey to the male gaze. Which is a quite radical stance yeah. of kind of <laughs> to kind of take away something. So, well, in the, in the yes, and, but it also, um, I, I think it assumes that you can have, that we could find a pure femininity outside of structures of power hmm. or pure masculinity outside of structures of power it's actually this is my sort of performative take on it that those structures of power are what enable and facilitate and produce and reproduce and cite gender normativity that it's yeah. not it, they don't arise from gender normativity gender normativity they continue yes to produce it, yeah. yeah so i think i think there's that that again that moment in 70s a feminist practice. If we think of, there's a, a British artist called Linda, L-I-N-D-E-R. Her surname's Sterling, but she just tended to go by Linda, or still does. And, and she would make collages using pornography. Mm. And she would cut them up and rearrange them with household objects and various different uh, images. And she's having quite a, a lot of attention now. But at the time, um, she was repeatedly told... Um, there's no way you can reassemble these images. What you're doing is violent. And mm. part of what she's saying was, is, well, the violence is already there. How do I reuse these violence, even to think of how violence and pleasure sit alongside each other or how objectification um, and pleasure sit alongside each other? Because they're kind of, they're not just critical of 
pornography. They understand pornography as having some kind of... I mean, why is pornography there? Mm. Who consumes it? What? Yeah, who produces it? Who stars in it? You know, those sorts of... What are the material conditions of its production? And how does that sit along the side, you know, the, the idea of the domestic female body not showing itself? So she, she often cuts those things up and puts them together. Oh, interesting, yeah. Yeah, she tells these stories around being refused to be able to take part in feminist art exhibitions. Yeah, because, I, can, yes. I can imagine. Yeah. yeah. But but I think now there's, particularly with the rise of um, queer theory, but as you say, a much more intersectional understanding mm. of, of the white gaze, of the cis gaze, of other modes of power operation, operating through the gaze, that actually it's not about fi- returning to some moment before visual culture. Visual culture is how we've constructed the bodies that we live in and continue to live in. Yeah. It's not this nostalgia for a time before. It's actually saying, well, okay, if power flows through looking, mm. can we fuck with it? And I think that's, that's uh, for me, that's where we are now with gaze theory. That's, uh, that's a good place to be, I think. Really? <laughs> <laughs> I have this uh, question or that I put down, but I don't know how interesting it is, but, but I can say it and then we can see. As a response to the male gaze came the kind of female gaze, yeah. which seems to be, when I read up a little bit about it, a bit confused and a bit uninspired almost kind of attempt of, of saying this is, again, super binary of like, this is yeah. then the better thing to do, right. to have the female gaze. And someone then said, like, there is no female gaze, there is the female experience. Right. Do you have any relationship to the female gaze? I mean, I, I think for me, if we're going to talk about a gendered gaze, it's much more interesting, difficult and problematic to, to, to keep it as the male gaze. Because what we're saying, what we're analysing, as Mulvey was back in the 70s, is binary focus on masculinity as control as being as controlling the gaze of course now we know that actually it just produces masculinity masculinity Mm. isn't behind it it's it's what masculinity is formed out of so i don't know i i have encountered some writings around the female gaze and again it assumes that uh, a female spectator is already constituted before she looks at at something and i think if we think well actually we're constituted by how we look and are looked at we don't sort of exist before yeah. the gaze. Yeah, I see what you mean. So it's an attempt to kind of say, oh, can we escape the male gaze yeah. and find the female gaze? And I think, well, no, the male gaze is already about the female gaze. Mm. It's a set of theories are actually about gendered heterosexual forms of power yeah. and how they're arranged through looking. Yeah, not this like perfect, like a woman is like this. And yes. Like from, yeah. Yeah. Yes, it's not just that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I also think it is interesting when, when people, like, for example, in pornography, when this is made for women and it's, and I'm not saying it's anything wrong with that, like good, anyone liking it, whoever you yeah, are, yeah. fine. But it's very interesting how you kind of put it on as a, it's softer and more romantic, you know, it's at least how I experienced it when I was younger. It really was like, that's the way you should enjoy things, because if you enjoy something else, uh, it is yes. the wrong way. Right. So this is for you, you yeah. know, like as a cis woman, yeah. like, this is the, the nice way of, of dealing right. with erotica, for example. Yes. And yeah, yeah. Of course, that's great to people like that. But it's just interesting how you put it as, as yeah, totally binary, but also yeah. just like all women, this is for you. Yes. When we have, you know, a bunch of people identify as women <laughs> being different. So I think that, again, it kind of, yeah. When I read about the female gaze, I felt very kind of uninspired or like just that it felt a bit. Well, it suggests that that to identify as uh, politically in a politically positive way as female, you need to 
not enjoy being objectified or not mm. enjoy being yeah. fetishized. And actually, that's a very oversimplified understanding of how we constitute ourselves yeah. in relation in desire. So, some, you know, desire is always, again, I, I know I always quote Judith Butler, but she says we're undone by de- desire. Desire isn't just confirming who we are. It always sort of tears us apart somehow. Mm. And through fetishism, through masochism, through all these different kind of formations, of course, it matters how that violence is enacted and experienced. So I'm not saying that that we shouldn't pay attention to violence, but to understand fantasy as something quite different from violence. I mean, this this is the, uh, you know, Andrew Dworkin's famous line um, that porn is the theory, rape is the practice. Is this oversimplification that, that what that kind of register of visual culture is all about enacting violence upon women and it's far too black and white and doesn't allow for multiple subject positions simultaneously you've got to always be a good (laughs) yes a good female looking looking in a polite way yeah exactly Uh, yes in the right way yes yeah and i i find that less interesting or useful there's a book black looks which is really kind of saying okay how do i how do we understand race as, as operating and what are the oppositional forms? But it's, it's not saying that blackness exists outside of um, racist ideologies. Mm. Those racist ideologies produce race. That you know, Race yeah. isn't a, an inherent thing that bodies have. It's produced through racism. Gender isn't an inherent yeah. thing that bodies have. It's produced through uh, heterosexism. So mm. it's, it's all these kind of flips to understand that actually gaze theory is much more dynamic. Yeah. Super interesting. Yeah. Uh, to me, what has become more clear is the connection between the kind of male gaze and how that is reproduced and how we are dealing with it in relation to like gender, like we yeah. were saying. That that's something I haven't. It makes total sense. Thing. It is bigger than just one thing. You know, yeah. like it. Of course, it's in relation to so many other things. Yeah. Uh, but I feel pretty happy with the, with where we are at. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, then I want to say thank you so much, Martin, for coming to talk to me about. Uh, gazes and the male gaze <laughs> it was wonderful and and gaze looking at gaze also yeah <laughs> exactly yeah my pleasure thanks thank you